and uh, we'll not read to start, we'll read as we go, I think, so we'll just go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon our time in the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity to come together and sing about you, and we thank you for the, the music that we've just even listened to and been able to reflect upon those words that you are indeed strong and kind, and you're there for us as a saviour. You're a great and mighty compassionate saviour, and we thank you for that. But Lord, as we get into the book of Esther this evening, I pray you would help us to see that uh, God's people will face opposition and that, uh, Lord, we just see it through time and age that the enemy will attack from all angles and all ways um, to distract us, to destroy us, whatever it is, to get us away um, from your work and your will. So, Lord, I pray you would just help us to unpack this a little bit tonight as we just continue through this narrative, really, Lord, and and just uh, talk through it together and see the key points that you would have us see tonight, Lord. And I ask that you would use me. I ask that you would give me uh, the words, uh, point me to the right uh, portion of Scripture that you would have me focus on tonight, Lord. I want to seek your guidance in this, Lord. I know that I've prepared and um, I've shook your face as I've prepared this, Lord, but yeah, Lord, with every message, there's always something that you want to focus in on. And whatever that is tonight, Lord, I pray you would help me in that and help us to have hearts and minds to receive what the Word of God and the Spirit of God has for us tonight. So I just thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. In your precious name, amen. I don't know, as a Christian, do you ever sit back and think? So Some of you may say, no, not really, but do you ever just think some Sometimes I do, certainly as a pastor, sometimes I sit back and I think, you know, things are a little bit quiet. Things are a little bit too quiet. You know, if you've been a servant Christian for any any length of time, and, and I say servant Christian, you will know that you will come under attack from the enemy in all areas and all ways, and just even the littlest things can be used to try and derail you. And so as a, as a Christian, sometimes you expect to be in a battle. And that's fair enough. That's biblical because we're told, the Apostle Paul tells us, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That Why wouldn't it be a battle? Um, so in the times where everything seems to be going okay, sometimes you're like, oh, well, what's around the corner? What's around the horizon? It's too quiet because, you know, this is a battlefield. We do know the battles between God and the enemy. We know there were the people of God in an enemy battlefield. And we should expect opposition. Because God's people, when they stay true to God's word and take God's path, they will, they will come up against it. They'll come up against the world. That's the way it is. And when we get to uh, chapter number three of, of Esther tonight, we're, we're going to see that, you know, time has passed since we've last been with Esther and Mordecai. And if you remember, we were last with, when we were last with them, uh, Esther had been promoted to um, queen of the land. Mordecai, we talked about how he had sat in the, in the king's gates. We'd been promoted to some judicial position under Xerxes or Azarerus's rule. So things are going pretty swimmingly. Things are going, going okay. Nothing really major's happening. They're going on with their lives. But, but, even though it looks all good, in the background, darkness rises. And this darkness has a particular name. 
And the darkness that's rising in the background is a man by the name of Haman. And in chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman. We laid him out at the start as one of the characters in this. We're introduced to him, and, and we're going to see that his position rises, and with him, the dark intents towards the people of God rises with him. And we're going to see that even though it looks like things are all okay on the surface, ultimately, underneath, the enemy is working against the people of God. And if there's nothing going on at the minute, it's because the enemy has something cooked up that's coming down the line. It's coming down the pipe as it were for the believer because we live in a world that is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the people of God so that's how we live that's the way it is that in the background there's always darkness rising so let's think about this and let's unpack it and we'll pick up in verse number one um, and think about first of all the promotion We're going to see that and the resulting protocol. So look at verse number one of chapter three of Esther. And the word of God reads this. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamathadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman for the king so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence. So here we have, again, you know, the Bible just casually throws it in there in verse number one of chapter three, after these things. This gap that's in there um, and the events that have gone on there, there's years have passed, and in the events that's gone on there, this man Haman has been promoted by Xerxes the king, or Azarerus, and uh, risen to a position of power. Now we kind of looked at that last time, as how Mordecai really was kind of overlooked. He was instrumental in, in following the plot upon the king's life. And in terms of his promotion, really nothing's done. It's recorded in a book and set away, and we noted how that God had his hand upon that. But uh, at this point, we see, you know, four or five years later from, from those events, we see in chapter number three, a man rise out of nowhere, Haman. And it says that Haman was an Agagite. The Agagites were the enemies of God's people. We looked at this right at the start of our introduction to um uh, the book of Esther. The Amalekites attacked Israel as, as God was bringing the people out of the land on their journeys. They attacked them and they attacked them from behind. Later on in the life of Israel, King Saul is told to go by God and wipe out the Amalekites, you know, wipe out them as a nation. And uh, King Saul doesn't fulfill that. He doesn't do it. It ultimately costs him his uh, standing as, as the king in Israel. But he doesn't do what he's meant to do, and he lets King Agag live. The Agagites are, are descendants of the king that Saul left spare. You know, So Saul didn't do what God asked him to do. Even though Saul went and they attacked him and he over, overthrew them and took spoil, he didn't do what God said to do. He did some of it, but not all of it. And the lesson for us is that even if we cannot see why God would have us do something, even if we can't understand why God would say specific things and make us hold to them whenever it looks like we could do something that's just similar but a little bit different, the lesson is that God knows best. And that when God tells us to do something, 
We just need to listen. There's far too much of, well, God, let's debate about this. Because I think this is. You know, many different subjects that you go into, and, and it's like, well, God, why don't we just do that, but change that a little bit. Ultimately, by King Saul not doing what God had told him to do, completing it to the uh, exact instructions of God, this um, situation is going to arise where this darkness arises and ultimately you're going to see threatens the entirety of the nation. God knows best. Calvin said, Nothing is more fatal to us than to refuse to give ourselves in obedience to God. God always has his reasons. And he knows best. So maybe God is, just in your own life, calling you to something. Challenging you about something. Maybe you've read something in the word and you're like, oh, that's a bit harsh, God. I think the approach we need to be taking is, God, you know best. If that's what you say, that's what we're going to do. End up. But Haman, he's descended from this king and he's risen up and he's got himself to a position of power. And so to kind of just even rub insult into injury in terms of Mordecai, not only now has Mordecai seen one of his um, ancient people's enemies rise to a position of power, but notice in verse 2 that the king commanded uh, concerning him that people bowed. And it says that Mordecai didn't bow. So here we are, we have a promotion. It's not Mordecai, it's Haman. Haman the Agagite, Haman the relative of King Agag. Haman that had a history of hatred for the people of God. He has been risen to power. Darkness has risen and the protocol is put in place that all were to bow before Mordecai. So there we have the promotion and the resulting protocol. We move on then to verses 3 to 9 and we see a plea in the resulting plot. Look at verse 3. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they speak daily unto him, he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast prayer, that is, the lot, before Haman from day to day, and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither they keep the king's laws, Therefore, is it not for the king's prophet to suffer them? 
If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. So here we have this situation that has arisen. Darkness has arisen. Haman has arose to a position of power. And the king has ordered that those in the king's gates, the servants and all the officials, are to bow to Haman. They're to give him reverence because of his position in the king's regime. And there's a plea made to Mordecai because Mordecai is not bowing. Verse 3, the king's servants, which were in the king's gates, said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's commandment? Why are you not doing this? In verse 4, we're told that it came to pass they daily spoke unto him. So this is going on, obviously. There's a the period of time here. And what's happened is Mordecai saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. He, and it says there at the end of verse 4, he told them that he was a Jew. So he told them about his heritage at this point. And he says, I'm not bad. I'm not doing it. Now notice these people that worked with Mordecai day and daily who are pleading with him it seems or you know, uh, certainly asking him to explain and you know, what are you doing this for? Maybe some of them are his friends saying what are you doing this for? You're just going to get yourself in trouble. What's the point in this? When you get to first, uh, the end of verse 4 says that they went and told Haman. So the very people that are appealing to Mordecai, maybe some of them friends or showing themselves as friends, then later are the very ones that go and tell Haman, he's not doing this. He's not doing this. What can I pull out of this? What can I think about? I think there's a lesson in here that, you know, sometimes the people that say they're our friends really aren't our friends. I think especially in the workplace, and you may have found this out, where you've been passed over for promotion or been thrown under the bus in your workplace by people that you thought were your friends, but actually they want to get ahead a little bit. No doubt some of this is going on. Oh, I'm going to tell Haman. I'll get in Haman's good books. Haman's the man that's risen to power. Mordecai's a... Yesterday's news. Nobody's worried about him. Nobody's bothered about him. You know, true friends are hard to find. There's no doubt about that. And I was thinking about this, and I just thought about Proverbs, Proverbs eighteen, verse twenty-four. It says, "A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother." You know, sometimes we may not have many true friends on this earth. I'm thankful that the church is a different place to the world but even still I'm thankful that each and every one that names the Lord Jesus has a friend that sticks closer than a brother one that will never leave nor forsake the hymn he'll love me to the end says this, there's a friend who's closer than a brother or all the world has spread his love and fame like him to love and save there is no other and Jesus Christ, my Saviour, is his name. I wonder this evening, do you have a friend that's closer than a brother? That will never leave you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the world will let us down, but the one from above will never do that. But here Mordecai, you know, he's been thrown under the bus by those that he works with. But he's not bound. Why is he not bound? 
What's the reason? Well, he's told them he's a Jew. And the thing is, you know, you could say and look at it and you could take the approach and say that, well, you know, the Jews, he's keeping to the commandments not to, to worship false idols, etc. But this bounds not worship. This is within a structure. This is reverence for the position. No different if we would bow to the king or the queen. You know, we bow because of the position. We don't worship them. You know, thinking, would I bow for the king? Yes, I would probably, but begrudgingly compared to bowing for the queen. But that's a different story. So, you know, is that it? Maybe. What, what is going on with Mordecai? Here's what I do know. Mordecai has simply drawn a line in the sand. That's what he's done. He says, I'm a Jew. And he goes back to his, his history, his ancestry. He goes back to who uh, Haman is, who he is. And for whatever reason, he has decided, I'm not going to bow. Now, was he right? Was he wrong? That's for Mordecai to decide in that case. Somebody today who doesn't, you know, doesn't want to bow for the queen and the king, that's them on their own conscience before God. Romans 14. But what I do see from Mordecai, that we, I think, have to, at times, take an example from, is simply this. There are times where we have to draw a line in the sun. Now, our lines in the sand, when it comes to the things of the word of God, should have a doctrinal basis. But sometimes we just say, do you know what? This is the hill I'm going to die on. This is it. This is my line. And that's too far from me. I'm not going to cross it. And that's what Haman's done. He's not going to bow. I wonder, I wonder, do you have any lines in the sand? We live in a world today where the church is very good at scraping our lines in the sand out and walking backwards as the world pushes forwards. Push forward in sexuality and the church, rather than stand upon the line, takes a step back, wipes the line out, and allows the world to come forward. We need churches that are willing to take a stand and put their line in the sand and say, do you know what? This is what God's word says. This is it for me. I'm not moving. Here I stand and I can do no other. Mordecai is going to stand. He's not going to bow to Haman. So regardless about his reasons, this is it. He's... he's, he's, he's Dug his heels in. He's not going to move on this at all. And what's the result of this? Verse number five. Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did have reverence. Then he was, Haman was full of wrath. Filled with wrath. And you think about this. Haman's life to this point has been on a meteoric rise. He's risen to position of power. He's got everything he needs. He's ruling and he's reigning. But yet, this one thing, this one guy, is consuming him. Consuming him. 
know, everything else is going well. One thing has filled them with wrath. And no doubt this whole concept of being filled with wrath is just not being able to let it go, just being constantly in your mind, outraged at the anger of, of this Jew. Not bowing his head. Just one. He's losing his mind. Now think about this in terms of application. And you know, how often can we, no matter how well things are going, just allow one thing to dominate our thoughts and to drive us crazy? Just one little thing. When everything else is going alright. Instead of focusing on all the good, we're just stuck on the one little thing. Me and Claire were watching a, a film the other night. I'll not tell you the name of the title, so you can't go away and search it and judge me for what films I watch. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the plot line was, was simply this. Criminal, criminal movie. And the, 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 the guys was involved in, in bank robberies and stuff like that. Anyway, he was doing one last job. You know the, you know the, you know the films. One last job, and then I'm going to quit. So he's been saving up his money like a good little criminal for his, his, his new life. And the job goes wrong a little bit, but he's on his way. He's like literally got his ticket. He's got his way out of the country. He's got his money waiting. He's got his girl with him. He's ready to go. But there's one little thing that has been niggling him, one little thing that's been on his mind. Somebody had kind of, uh, you know, grasped him up, ratted him in, and the job didn't go as well. And he can't get it out of his mind. And instead of just focusing on what he has and going off into the sunset and being scot-free, he just has to go and... Sort this one thing out and deal with this guy and ultimately cost him his life. And then, you know, thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, that's, that's us. All the things, we talked about it this morning, all the things we have in Christ Jesus, all the blessings, the grace, and yet these one little things, these little hamans, can just pull us down and pull us away and dominate our thoughts fill us with wrath and all of a sudden our thinking's out the window and we start to feel negative and we start to feel sorry for ourselves and you know somebody said this and somebody said that you know there's always going to be somebody that'll say this always going to be somebody that says that but if you're a born again believer you know what Jesus says about you and that's more than any of that will ever be but we get caught and carried away in the little things the little Hamans in our lives. So Haman is absolutely filled with wrath. And notice what that wrath leads to, verse 6. Because not, not is this just a, a simple, well, I'll take Mordecai out, I'll deal with him alone. It says, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. He's starting to think about the bigger picture. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. What's going on here? This is from one man to a nation, to a whole people group. And really this gets back to the the animosity, the history that is in there, the hatred that is in there that you will see today in anti-Semitism. You will see today on the world stage that it goes back to these family feuds and ultimately this hatred of the Jewish people. And and Haman hates the Jews. He's an Agagite. He's a a relative of Agag. And he's thinking about this. And I go, he's thinking to himself, I can't take this. I'm not going to have this. And more than this, I'm going to deal with with this I'm going to fix this family feud 
For all those years ago, I'm going to take my revenge. What do we see here? We see wrath has had its place, but ultimately we're now seeing that Haman is a puppet in the hands of the God, lowercase g, of this world. His master is moving him. Who's his master? Satan. Satan to destroy God's people. And here's the thing, that, that, that theologically and biblically, the more you understand our enemy, the more that you'll see that his play script is very similar. He doesn't change things that much from the start. He's always using the same tools. He's always using the same kind of hatred and wrath of God's people to maneuver people into trying to exterminate the people of God. God, Satan handed this script to Pharaoh, did he not? To try and wipe out that race. And Haman answered, or Pharaoh answered his master, went out and put a plan in place to kill the Hebrew boys. But ultimately God protected them. Satan's handed a script to Haman here. Hate God's people, the Jews. Wipe them out. Commit genocide. Destroy them. And Haman's more than willing to do it. Hitler handed the same script. Wipe out God's people. See, Ephesians, I've said this time and time again, tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. You look at the world, it has a system. And at the top of that pyramid sits Satan. And the things that go on in this world are under his control, ultimately under the banner of God's sovereignty, but God has allowed this. Adam lost dominion of this world. Satan has it. And he has a system in place, and he has people in place, he has governments in place, he has leaders in place, ultimately to attack the people of God and stop the plans and progress of God. Why does he want to stop the plan and progress of God? Because he knows that God... Said right at the start of time, Genesis 3, it is doom is sure. He wants to stop the plans and purposes of God, and that's what's going on here. Haman is a picture, a type, a shadow of the Antichrist. We're going to see this as we get in and we look a bit further on, and Haman will not deal with it this week, but we will get there. Haman is hatching this plot to exterminate the people of God. One man won't bow. Now he's like using this and saying, that's the opportunity that I need to do my master's bidding and wipe out the people of God once and for all. Hatred has grown to murder. A murder of one has grown to the extermination of an entire people. This is just another picture of what the enemy can do with a heart that's full of hatred. And use it for anything. So the plot's been hatched, but what will the king say about this all? Let's uh, wrap it up here in verses 10 to 15, where we have the permission and the resulting proclamation. Verse number 10. 
of chapter 3 of Esther. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamathadatha. What's a good one? Hamathadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said to Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemed good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called in the thirteenth month of the first month that there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over uh, every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language in the name of King Azararus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. So this ties in a little bit. We're talking about the seal of the spirit this morning. This is it in principle that the king and his ring sealed this. That meant ownership, identification and security. The king had put his stamp on this. So rather than the king just saying, you know what, that's crazy. What do you do? He falls for Haman's plan, hook, line, and sinker, and he gives Haman his ring. And really that, again, is that, 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 that seal to say that anything that Haman was about to do, he had the authority of the king to do it. So here these um, letters go out across all the provinces and all their languages so that everybody understood that there was coming a time down the line on Adar, approximately 12 months on from that point in this sun. Adar's a 12th month um, on from this sun. And so basically a year, that in a year's time, on a given day, the people were going to be exterminated. They were going to be wiped out copy of the text of this edict went out across every province, made known to every people of every nationality. Everybody knew about this. It goes throughout the Persian kingdom. And it was all Jews, not just men, and just the firstborn, all. Men, women, children, the whole lot. They were all to be exterminated. Proclamation goes out. And notice, look at verse, uh, well, we'll read from verse 13. And the letters were sent by posts into all the king's providence to destroy, to kill, cause to perish all Jews, again, both young and old, little children, women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 13th month, which is the month of Adar, and to take the spoil of them for prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. Verse 15. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment and the decree was given in Shushan the palace as the center of these events and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city Shushan was perplexed. Here we have this darkness rising. And those protagonists, those that are behind the king and ultimately Haman, in the day that this goes out and the palace is made aware of it, the people of the palace are astonished, they're perplexed, they're mystified. What is going on here? Number one, they know uh, Mordecai. 
Number two, they're like, well, it's one man. How now has it escalated to this point where we want to exterminate man, woman, and child? Every one of those Jewish people we're going to kill. We're going to wipe them off the face of the map because of this one event. And the people sit back and go, what? But Haman and the king... In the day that they have ordered mass extermination, genocide, sit down to drink. Not even moved. We look at this and go, what is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Darkness is rising against the people of God. And the enemy of God... And the workers of the enemy of God will do all that they can to attack the people of God and will not blink one eyelid when they see the people of God led to the slaughter. Ye game will go to Hitler. We'll go to the Second World War and you look at that. And where there were people in Germany that were dissenting voices. And there were people that were perplexed there were many that simply followed through with those orders. Put many men, women and children into the grave and went and sat around a table and feasted and drank and never batted an eyelid. I love to say to you tonight that you know we look at this and say that was relegated to history. That God's people the Jews or the church today don't face the persecution that they did those years ago or don't face the persecution that they did when Hitler was around. But unfortunately, they do. Why? Because darkness is always working against the people of God. The devil hates the people of God and the things of God. And what we see in uh, Esther chapter number 3 is we see the enemy attacking. We see this anti-Semitism which really simply is uh, uh, an anger against God from the enemy. But we see it in our world today. Christians persecuted all over the world. People of God. We see Jews persecuted today still in places. We see people that do these things and don't even seem to bat an eyelid at it. And we see a world that may be perplexed at times but really doesn't do anything about it. No different from the day of Esther. But I am thankful and even though the people were perplexed, and even though um, you know, it didn't look like there was many people around to support, God was there. God shows his hand of protection, and he does that for his people today also. But wrapping this round and bringing it to kind of a conclusion here and thinking about this for us, you know, what's the lesson that we're to learn as Christians as we look into uh, Esther chapter number 3 well, I said to you at the start that you know things were going alright for Esther and things were going alright for Mordecai but in the background darkness was rising and Haman was darkness's name in this occasion 
But the thing for us today is to realize, truly realize, that we cannot, we cannot, let me say this again, we cannot cozy up to the world and expect the world to love us. It's not the way battles work. Fortunately, again, for some reason, the church and Christians think that if we you know, get on with the world, we befriend the world, we cozy up to it in terms of church and state and principles and practices, then we'll be all right and we'll not suffer. Ultimately, that's not true because the enemy of God who controls this world is always out to attack the people of God. You know, <laughs> you just can't put our heads down and expect to wait the Christ returns, you know, blend them with the world and we'll be all right. You're a believer here, the devil hates you. Why? Because he hates Christ. And you're his. We looked at that this morning. You're in Christ. You know, I've told this illustration, I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard this illustration, but it rings true. It's the illustration of a, you know, a snake that was lying at a roadside in a cold winter's night. A farmer happens to be passing by and the snake said to the farmer, if you pick me up, you hold me into your stomach, you warm me. The farmer said, if I do that, you'll bite me. The snake answered, why would I do that if you save me? So the farmer had compassion on the snake. He takes it up, he places it on his chest, he brings heat into it, revives it with his warmth. As soon as the snake's reformed, it bites the farmer. The farmer cries, why did you bite me after I saved you? Simple answer, simple illustration. You knew I was a snake when you picked me up. What's the, the moral of that story? The snake was just doing what was natural to it. And the lesson here is, folks, that the church is like that snake. We, or the world is like that snake. We can cozy up to it. And it may be alright for a while, but at some point, it's going to turn around and attack us. Because ultimately this world is in control of Satan. And we don't belong to him. We're his enemy. The believer today is an enemy of Satan because we take the Lord Jesus Christ with us wherever we go. When we compromise, when we cozy up to the world, we let all sorts of havoc and consequences in. And this is what I say, we have to draw our lines. You know, the Lord Jesus himself said, John 17, that we are in the world but not of the world. Yet, yes, we, we are in the world. We live in the world, we function in the world, but we're not of it. We are citizens in heaven. That's the biblical truth. That this home should not have roots for us. You know the beautiful, beautiful um, picture of the wheat and the tares is that wheat and tares. If you know the story, it talks about you know how the believers, non-believers, kind of in the same environment, certainly within the church, and that wheat and tares, how they're different. They look the same. Absolutely, look the same. Darnell is 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 the tear and wheat look the same until the harvest comes. It's a beautiful picture. Until the harvest comes. Because when the harvest comes, when the, the wheat is ready to yield, the wheat bows it. Also, when it's plucked, it doesn't have deep roots. 
But the darnel, the tear, it stays straight up to the end. And its roots go deep into the world. Believers, we're weak. We're not meant to be tied to this world. We look to the one that's to come. Our citizenship is in heaven. The world is not our friend. The world is our battlefield. And we will face opposition. And when we cozy up to the world, and it looks like, you know, the government's on the church side, or this or that, you will find it's just a matter of time before they turn and show their true colors. In chapter number 3 of Esther, darkness is rising. The cozy lives that Esther and Mordecai had are going to be challenged as they face this challenge as the enemy of God looks to exterminate them and ultimately remove the line of the Messiah. This man Haman is the front of this, but behind him is his puppet master, Satan himself. Working on his plan to destroy the people of God. The nation of Israel once again facing mass extinction. But remember, where the enemy works, God is working too. And the low darkness was rising. God is going to work in the lives of these people and do a, 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 an amazing miracle. The things that have gone on in the past are going to be brought to the front and we're going to see God's hand in this from the beginning. So here's the finishing call. Let me finish on a positive. Let me say this, that the enemy of God is always working against the people of God, but the God of the people is always working for the people. We may not see it, but he's there. He's there. But the warning for us is, that we don't cozy up to the world. That we realize we're not of the world. And that living for him, we don't get bit by the things that we shouldn't have got bitten with in the start. I wonder this evening, are you in that place where everything looks like it's all right? I wonder, is there something going on in the background? Is there something there that maybe is a danger? Maybe you've got a, a snake in your arms. I don't know what it is. Here's what I want to say to you. Get rid of it. Run from it. Flee from it. And get with God. And don't let the things of the world come back and bite you and take you to a place that you don't want to go. Darkness is rising, folks, in chapter 3 of Esther. But we're going to see that God is working. And in chapter 4 and on, God is going to do that mighty miracle. He's going to protect his people and show his love for his own. Let's pray.